1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb or voiceless idols, however you were led. Therefore, I may known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now imagine growing up in a pagan culture where idols were commonplace. Every member of your family had his or her favorite idol. At family gatherings, your parents, your siblings would argue over which gods were best. Your sisters paid homage to the bulldog idol. Your brother and his wife, they worshipped the gator god. Your cousin was into this real wacko religion called buzz worship. (laughs) Whenever your mom cleaned house, she would always lift her special little idol up off the mantel so that she could dust underneath its base. On your way to school, you'd pass the temple where you'd peer through one of the windows at your God sitting there, standing there, standing there in stone silence. You see, you knew that idols were seen, not heard. But now you're a Christian. You've embraced Jesus in your life. You've swapped the inanimate idols of your past for a living God. Your God comes. You call Him the Holy Ghost because He comes quietly and He whispers your name. In a tangible world, He comes to you spiritually. And rather than sit perched on the mantle, your God acts. He imparts the supernatural. He supplies you with eternal power for your everyday life. And finally, you now have a God who speaks. Idols were seen, not heard. But the real God is just the opposite. He's unseen, but oh, He speaks. The Corinthians learned that the true God isn't a dumb, speechless, mute idol. He is the living God who talks to His people in audible ways. God speaks to and through God's people. And this excited the Corinthians. Now when they spoke to God, God spoke back to them. Prayer had become a two-way street. Imagine a live stream in real time between God and His people. This is what the church in Corinth had come to expect whenever they got together to worship and praise the Lord. In fact, if you live next door to the church at Corinth, you might have called the cops from time to time to complain about the volume. This was a church that got loud. The Corinthian church had become infatuated with spiritual gifts. And who can blame them? Escaping an idolatrous world where gods are stone silent, how thrilling it was to experience some divine instant messaging. Worship had gone from library silence to the banter of a chat room. And in light of the exhilarating changes Christianity had brought to their lives, I think we can excuse the Corinthians for getting a little carried away. You see, the Holy Spirit is the God who speaks. He speaks in various ways. For one, He's spoken through the pages of Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, the Apostle Peter explains the origins of your Bible. He says, holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
The Spirit of God moved on the minds and methods of the apostles for them to record certain truths on paper. The Holy Ghost also speaks to us in that still, small voice. You remember, in contrast to the storm and the quake and the fire, God spoke to Elijah through an inner whisper. And when we dial in spiritually, He speaks to us in that same manner. But God also speaks as He did in Corinth through spiritual gifts. You read here in chapter 12, you read on in the chapter, and you'll see how the Holy Spirit gives to the church a diversity of gifts or activities. Our English word gifts is a translation of the Greek word charisma. It's a compound word. Charis means grace. Mata is gifts. Spiritual gifts are literally grace gifts. A charismata is not a reward you receive for some diligent service or for some extreme sacrifice. No, spiritual gifts are doled out by God's grace. You don't earn them any more than you earn your salvation. You can only receive them. Faith, not work, is the key. Grace gifts come to those who believe. Think of spiritual gifts as power tools. If your dad has a birthday soon and you don't know what to get him, try a power tool. Doesn't matter which one, he'll love it. Men are into power. Every guy likes a tool that cranks. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit are God's power tools. They're normal activities on steroids. That's one way to look at it. Don't mistake spiritual gifts for learned skills. They're not the same. Don't mistake them for from natural abilities. Again, they're not the same. Charismata are supernatural proclivities that come from God. They enable us to know or do or speak in a way that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. God supplies the power. And the Corinthians were using these power tools in their church. Earlier in the book, in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul complimented the Corinthians He says, you have come short of no gift. Chapter 12 lists the various gifts, and several of them, you'll notice, involve speech. There was prophecy. There was words of knowledge and wisdom. There was speaking in tongues. And there was interpretation. This was all happening in the church at Corinth. I want to run through this list a bit and try to describe a few of these gifts for you. First, there were words of knowledge and words of wisdom. The Holy Spirit would speak to a person about specific details that they had no way of knowing otherwise. The recipient would have no prior knowledge, no frame of reference. Just as they waited on God, flashes of information came supernaturally. Suddenly, they knew something about a friend that the friend might not even know about himself. A medical condition, perhaps. A hidden hurt. Maybe a a buried secret. The Corinthians were sharing these insights with one another. They were shining God's light into each other's lives. It was exciting. There were also gifts of prophecy. Here's a gift that turns mechanics and housewives into God's mouthpiece. God targets a situation that He doesn't specifically address in Scripture. But then he sends a communique about that situation through you, through the person delivering the prophecy. I like to refer to the gift of prophecy as God's bullhorn. 
It's His way to speak directly to God's people. Often it's a warning, or maybe it's a calling, or perhaps even a comfort. Prophecy is always just the right word at just the right time. It's a hotline to headquarters. Prophecy isn't something that's premeditated or preplanned. It's not a preplanned talk. The Hebrew word translated prophecy means to bubble up or to tumble out. It's a message from the Holy Spirit that just tumbles out, that flows from my spirit through my mind, out my mouth to God's people. It's a spontaneous, ecstatic form of speech. Amos 3.8 describes prophecy. There we're told, a lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Notice the Holy Spirit often whispers in a still small voice, but with the gift of prophecy, he roars like a lion. For two years, Kathy and I, we struggled to have kids. Finally, at a pastor's conference, she requested prayer. It was the last weekend in May 1982. And during that prayer meeting, one of the ladies prophesied over Kath. The Lord gave the lady a message. She said, by this time next year, you will have a child. Well, Zach was born May the 29th, 1983. Fulfilling the prophecy to the very day. And what kind of effect has that had on us? It's brought great joy and hope. And every time Zach gets into trouble, we just remember God has a plan for him. (laughs) The gift of prophecy brings the God of heaven into your living room. With words of knowledge and wisdom, God places ideas in your mind. With prophecy, he puts a word-for-word message on your tongue. But with the gift of tongues, God rescues us when our mind goes blank and when our tongue gets tied. This gift is a supernatural way to praise the Lord. And here's how it works. Of the 5,665 languages in the world today, I know only one. And not much of that. There are 800,000 words in English. And the working vocabulary of the average person is a mere 7,000 words. I probably fall under under that line, trust me. And this presents a problem. But what happens when you really want to express yourself? You really have something to communicate, but you can't find the words. It creates frustration, doesn't it? A real frustration, a real bottleneck. You see, humans are like this funnel. The narrow neck of the funnel represents our intellect, our vocabulary. The wide base at the top is our spirit. In the Spirit, we're capable of experiencing a wide array of feeling and emotion, deep sentiment, profound emotions. And yet for us to express it, express what we're feeling on this spiritual level, we have to force it through this narrow tunnel, this narrow intellect, and this very limited vocabulary. As a result, we get frustrated. There's a bottleneck. Our narrowness cuts down on our flow of feelings. As a result, it bottles up. Our reactions bottle up. It strangles our expressions. We end up pent up, and therefore, we shut up. And this isn't good. For God longs. He desires our praise and our worship. And this is the purpose of the gift of tongues. For God can bypass 
our limited mind, and our deficient vocabulary. By placing words into our mouth that perfectly articulate what we're feeling in our heart. We may not be familiar with the words themselves, but we speak them trusting God that they are the exact expression of the feelings that are trapped but brewing in our hearts. By giving voice to these words, we can release our pent-up praise. You know, sadly, some Christians don't grasp why bottled-up feelings are a problem in the first place. I mean, when your heart is dry, when your spirit is dusty, I mean, what do you care about praising God? It's only when you're overflowing with the new wine of the Holy Spirit. It's only when the joy of the Lord has filled your heart that expression becomes a top priority. Imagine getting lockjaw on your wedding day. How horrible would that be? You want to tell your spouse just how much you love them, but you you can't get it out. You, You can't speak. How frustrating that would be. Or think of going to the big football game with a case of laryngitis. You want to cheer for your favorite team, but you, you, you can't get a word out of your mouth. Well, the gift of tongues delivers us from these problems. The gift of tongues is the deliverer of imprisoned praise. Rather than fumbling for words, the Holy Spirit makes us fluent in our love for God. He gives us words that we can express our gratitude and our thanksgiving to God. In the book of Acts, the gift of tongues is often referred to as an unknown tongue. That's because the speaker doesn't necessarily know the language that he uses. This is how Paul describes speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 14. He says, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. You see, the worshiper brings his feelings and his voice. God then supplies the words and the phrases. And it can be any language, really. Did you know in 1 Corinthians 13, we're told that the gift of tongues can be the language of either men or angels. Imagine that. Speaking in the dialect of angels. Tongues can be a dead language. It can be a live language. The point is, is that God isn't limited. We might be limited in what we know, the language and words that we know, but God has unlimited vocabulary. What he asks us to do is to have faith to speak whatever he supplies and puts in our minds when we need to praise and worship our Lord. I love Harold Horton's explanation. He says, the gift of tongues sinks a well into the dumb profundities of the rejoicing spirit, liberating a jet of long-pent ecstasy that gladdens the heart of God and man. Have you never in the presence of Jesus felt inarticulate On the very verge of eloquence. Think of the gift of tongues as what your kid might do to a Coca-Cola. What kid hasn't shaken up that Coca-Cola and then popped the top or unscrewed the cap and released a spray of sizzle and foam? Likewise, when God fills us with the Spirit, when He shakes us up spiritually, it's only fitting then that He pops the top and relieves some pressure, he allows gratitude and praise to begin to spray out. This is the gift of tongues. When I speak in tongues in my private devotions, the language doesn't need to be interpreted to be useful. I know what's in my heart. I just need to express it. 
But if I were to speak in tongues with people present, it should be interpreted. For if not, folks present wouldn't understand my praise and be able to chime in. This is why in the public assembly of the church, God also gives a gift of interpretation. Someone present will interpret the praise being uttered. The interpreter doesn't know the language being spoken any more than the person speaking it, but God will put the translation in their mind and they'll speak it out. And as a result, everyone in the room will join in the praise. Apparently in the Corinthian church, these kinds of supernatural gifts were commonplace. But they weren't always coupled with common sense. Imagine how these kinds of gifts could be abused or misused. I mean, I wonder how often an unwelcomed intrusion into a person's life or an attempt to manipulate another person was passed off as a word of knowledge. Probably happened often. People can make up prophecies. That's why we're told elsewhere to test those prophecies. In fact, Paul stresses in our text this morning, the passage we read earlier, chapter 12, verse 3, that one of the ways to recognize the Holy Spirit is that he gets it right about Jesus. If the voice you hear denies Jesus or doesn't exalt Him as Lord, it's not the Holy Spirit. See, when it comes to tongues, it seems that the Corinthians forgot that they controlled the volume. That they were in charge of the on and off switch. Apparently, there were occasions when the Corinthians got so caught up in the moment that they forgot it was rude to interrupt someone else in their worship or to speak out of turn. In chapter 14... Paul had to remind the Corinthians that the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, even though God supplies the words, the Corinthians still have a responsibility. They control the volume. They they know when to speak, when not to speak. The vocal gifts were intended to build up others and glorify God, not just give the mouthpiece an opportunity to boast. As the Corinthians discovered, it's glorious, it's exciting when God speaks. The problem, though, lies in our reaction. For when it comes to these gifts, people tend to gravitate toward two extremes. What I call either charismania or charisphobia. And apparently, the Corinthians were the original charismaniacs. Maybe you've been to a church like this. A no-holds-barred-anything-goes worship service where folks are speaking over the top of each other and dancing at will and clamoring for attention, it seems. Oh, it's emotional, all right, but you're not so sure it's spiritual. Often what's credited to the Holy Spirit is neither holy nor spiritual. It's sad when church leaders fail to obey 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Let all things be done decently and in order. New Testament protocols should be followed. But you know, when I glance back in my rearview mirror, the rearview mirror of my life, what robbed me of God's blessing wasn't so much charismania as much as it was charisphobia. The church I grew up in had a fear of anything spiritual. You know, Paul told Corinth, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. The church I grew up in wasn't just ignorant. We were downright hostile towards spiritual gifts. Our church was dominated by charisphobia. You know, I was going to say this morning that my childhood church was suspicious of anything charismatic. But we weren't just suspicious. 
we were sure we were right. That we knew the truth. That speaking in tongues couldn't be healthy or holy or even to, for today or even from God. We didn't speak in tongues and we didn't like people who did. We might not have said it that way, but that was certainly our attitude. I remember being taught by people in my childhood church not to open myself up to the Holy Spirit and the spiritual gifts. For if I did, an evil spirit, a demon, might come along and take advantage of my openness and slip his way in. I look back on that theology and now I'm appalled. What kind of a God did they think we served? Maybe an uncaring God or an impotent God, but not the true God. An all-powerful and loving God would never allow a demon to take advantage of my openness to the Holy Spirit. Never. You know, my former pastor, he taught what's called the cessationist view. It's the idea that the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit ceased in the first century. That spiritual gifts like tongues and healings and prophecies ended with the apostles. And he had a proof text that he used. He'd always read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 12. I'll read it for you. It says, love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. Now the cessationists, they interpret that which is perfect as the New Testament. And so they say when the New Testament was finished, there was no longer any need for supernatural gifts, and so they ceased. And with that magical wand of interpretation... Our pastor took everything problematic or mystical or uncomfortable like tongues and prophecy and he just vanished it away. He just made it disappear. Didn't have to deal with it. Of course, how do you interpret that which is perfect as the New Testament? Or that which is complete? Yes, the New Testament tells us everything we need to know, but not everything there is to know or everything we'd like to know. In the context of 1 Corinthians 13, that which is perfect is our glorified, eternal state. I mean, when will I see Jesus face to face? After I read the New Testament? No. When will I know even as I am known? Not when the New Testament was finished, but when I get to heaven. When I enter into glory and receive my perfect state. You see, until Jesus returns... His church needs all His supernatural gifts. At Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was first poured out on the church, Peter explained what had happened. He quoted the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last day, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He understood that the Holy Spirit's power was for the last days. And let me say, if 2,000 years ago was considered the last days, how much more is today the last days? You know, I believe when we read what we read about in Acts, the miracles and the healings and the words of wisdom, 
These are still normative for the church today. God hasn't withdrawn his blessings. In fact, if we see something wonderful happen in the New Testament that's not occurring in our church, it's not God's fault. It's the result of our own lack of faith. I'll never forget the first time I was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. It scared me to death. I was spooked. I was a good Baptist boy. I couldn't speak in tongues, but I did. I'd been taught that tongues were dangerous. But as He filled me with the Holy Spirit, God started to put words in my mouth. He started to give me words to say. As soon as it happened, it scared me to death and I shut it down. This is just too strange. As I grew in my knowledge of God's Word and saw the ignorance of what I'd been taught, my initial reluctance bothered me. I knew I'd missed out on a blessing. I repented many times and I asked God to once again give me the gift of tongues, but it didn't happen. Not immediately at least. You see, God had a time and a place and a reason. In 1980, I enrolled at the Calvary Chapel Bible College in California. And I had the opportunity to attend that year's pastor's conference. I had just begun to learn that there were Calvary Chapel pastors other than Pastor Chuck. And I had heard of this guy named Lonnie Frisbee. He was supposed to be gifted in matters of the Holy Spirit. And so after the Bible study that night, I went up to Lonnie and I sought him out. I shared a little bit of my background and then I asked him to pray for me. I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit and I wanted to speak in tongues. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, take off your shoes. And I said, what? He said, take off your shoes. Now, it wouldn't have been that hard for me because I was only wearing flip-flops. But I was adamant. I'm not going to take my shoes off. I don't want any gimmicks here. I want God's power, not some charismatic hocus-pocus. That's not what I'm interested in. I want the real thing. He told me, man, take off your shoes. No, I'm not. And this is what he told me. He said, your problem is pride. Your problem is intellectual pride. If you can't figure it out, you won't believe it. And then he told me the story of Naaman. Do you remember that story? Listen as I tell you the story of Naaman. Naaman was this high-ranking Syrian general. He had distinguished himself on the battlefield. He had been honored by the king. He only had one problem. And there was this patch of leprosy that was growing on his skin and it scared him. Leprosy was lethal. But you see, Naaman had a slave girl who was a Hebrew. And she was familiar with a prophet in Israel who could help him. And she recommended to Naaman that he make a trip down to visit Elisha. When Naaman arrives, the man of God refuses to come out and greet him. And he gets insulted. In fact, Naaman sends his servant instead. His servant tells him to go down to the Jordan and dip himself seven times. And Naaman becomes furious. He expected the prophet to at least come out and greet him. Give him a formal hello. At least Elijah could come out and wave a hand or something. You know, make a show of it. Do something that would grab everybody's attention. Maybe make a headline for the newspaper the next day. But dip in a dirty river. I mean, there were rivers in Syria not near as murky and muddy as the Jordan. 
And I love how Naaman's men call him on the carpet. He gets mad, he gets upset with Elijah. But his, his people say to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Oh, I busted. I mean, to the wash in the Jordan seems silly. Oh, if Naaman had been asked to climb a mountain or wrestle a bear, something to stroke his ego, something to make himself look good, build up his image, fine. But the worst thing for a proud man is to appear foolish. You see, Naaman's pride liked being in control. Naaman liked calling the shots. He was always in charge of the battle plan. He was the general. For Naaman, two plus two equals four, or he doesn't budge. If he can't figure it out in advance, he's not going to participate. Well, Naaman was a leader, but now it's time for Naaman to learn to follow. He thinks through it. His friends help him. He reconsiders. And he heads down to the muddy, murky Jordan River to dip himself seven times. And I'm sure he griped and cursed after every single dip. Until the seventh. For when he rose out of the water the seventh time, he noticed his leprous patch. It was gone. It had disappeared. He was healed. But first... He was humbled. And that's what needed to happen to me. When Lonnie told me to remove my shoes, I got angry. I refused. I couldn't figure out what taking my shoes off had to do with me and the Holy Spirit working in my life. He told me, I'll never forget it. He said, look man, you're the one seeking prayer from me. And God told me not to pray for you until you take off your shoes. I got so mad, I stomped off in flip-flops, and that's hard to do. <laughs> I'll never forget, I walked upstairs, I, I, sat, I was sitting down, just to, I, was, I was fuming. So I sat down to gather myself, and you know, that's when God spoke to me. Sandy, he is exactly right. If you can't dissect it, if you can't get your mind around it, if it doesn't make you look good, you won't believe it. You won't participate. See, here's what I didn't understand. If I wanted to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if I wanted this supernatural power, if I wanted to move in the gifts of the Spirit, I had to let God take control. This was not about me. I had to let go. And I had to let God take control. My problem was my pride. And I'll never forget taking off my flip-flops and finding Lonnie on the back stairwell and waving my flip-flops at him like that. He said some nice things to me. But then he said, Well, Sandy, God just told me not to pray for you. I've done my part. And the guy walked off. <laughs> I had no idea what had occurred. But I felt about a million pounds lighter. And a few days later, it happened so naturally, so beautifully. I was just spending time with God when the Holy Spirit came over me and a former Southern Baptist started speaking in an unknown tongue. It was a wonderful feeling that I'll never forget. Since that day, I've come to realize how vital it is to take God at His word, even when you don't have it all figured out. God can be trusted. 
He sure doesn't have to pass everything by me before He works. I have to lay my image and my pride aside if I want to be a part of God's plan. Here's what I've learned. If you want to dance with God, you have to let Him lead. Even if you can bust moves like Taye. You still got to let Him lead if you want to dance with God. And nowhere is that more important than with the Holy Spirit. Don't be afraid to let God speak. You know, if you're a little antsy about all this talk of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and and ecstatic utterances and, and supernatural praise, I want you to listen to the promise that Jesus made to His disciples, to you and me, in Luke chapter 11. Jesus says to them, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? You you remember in the early church, the bread and the fish and the egg, they were all symbols for Christianity. Jesus is the bread of life. His first disciples were all fishermen. Jesus made them fishers of men. The egg spoke of new life. On the other hand, the stone speaks of spiritual hardness, hardness of heart. The serpent was a type of Satan. The sting of the scorpion is symbolic of death. So what is Jesus telling us? He's saying, don't ever think that opening yourself up to the Holy Spirit is going to make you vulnerable to anything evil. What kind of a father would allow a child to genuinely seek him and then get hijacked by a demon? God isn't that way. I love how Jesus concludes Luke 11. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And the Holy Spirit is a very good gift. This may... We took a group of middle school kids to Laguna Beach, Florida. And from all reports, it was tons of fun. The afternoons were spent frolicking on the beach, while the mornings and the evenings were spent studying the book of Acts. One morning, Pastor Zach taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he encouraged the kids to receive the power from God that they needed for their lives. After some beach time, they met again for worship and Bible study that night. Well, the next day, one of the kids, a seventh grader, he reported a strange incident. He said that he had been terribly tired the night before. He wasn't sure that he could stay awake during the worship. And he recalled Pastor Zach's Bible study. And so he asked God to give him spiritual, supernatural power. Power to stay awake during the worship. He prayed for that power. You know, I've known quite a few adults that could have prayed for that power as well. (laughs) But that's when it got weird, he said. Because during the worship, he was singing to God. And suddenly, strange words started popping into his mind. He said, like I was speaking in another language. Later, he approached Roland to report his experience. Understand, there had been no mention that day of speaking in tongues. The young man was unaware that the gift even existed. All he knew was that he had prayed for help to stay awake 
and spend time with God. And the Holy Spirit had answered his prayer by spicing up his praise and worship. Now I want to close with a question. Are you smarter than a seventh grader? I mean, can it be that simple? I mean, you just ask God for what He's promised and He just gives it to you? Can it be? I don't know about you, but I want all of God's blessings. You know, I'll bet whatever God is offering is something I probably need. I certainly don't want my ugly pride to stand between me and a blessing God desires to give me. I encourage us, I exhort us to be humble, to be open. Just because you don't understand it all doesn't mean you shouldn't want it all. I desire everything God has for me, and I hope you do too. You know, my problem isn't with the physical, tangible side of life. I know how to do life. I can manage the issues of my life on a material level. But you know what? Where I stumble, where, where I'm still just a baby, it's in the spiritual side of life. It's in my prayer life. It's in my worship time. This is where I need help. This is where I need assistance from God. And the Holy Spirit is willing. He's willing to help me in my prayer life. He's willing to help me in my times of praise and worship. He's willing to help me in my devotional life by giving me these wonderful gifts. You know, there's a present-day Christian denomination whose official policy towards spiritual gifts reads... Seek not, forbid not. But let me amend their statement to make it more biblical. Seek not, forbid not, and get not. Because if you don't seek it, chances are you're not going to get it. Jesus says, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Notice, Jesus in Luke 11 says, The Father gives the Holy Spirit to those who what? Who ask Him. If you desire God's blessings, you need to ask. Hey, don't try to be smarter than a seventh grader. You need to ask. Let me close with Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you for the encouragement this morning. And so, Lord, now it's time for us to respond. Lord, as we respond to you in faith today, we ask that you will come and meet us here through the Holy Spirit. And that you'll act among us and that you'll speak to us. Speak to us, Lord. You've spoken through Your Word. Speak to us through that, those inner whispers of Your Spirit. Speak also, Lord, to us through prophecies and words of knowledge and wisdom. Enable us to speak to You through the gift of tongues. Work in our hearts this morning, Lord. Here's how we're going to do our communion time.